Tune into Opportunity. Disrupt Radio. This is Disrupt Radio, live on DAB and streaming at disrupt.radio. Conscious Capital, net profit to net zero. Hi, I'm Tane Hunter, and you're listening to Conscious Capital, where we explore the cutting edge of science, technology, and human progress to help individuals and organizations understand what's coming next. On this show, you'll hear from scientists, entrepreneurs, and technologists who are all on a mission to foster intelligent, optimistic thinking about our future. You'll learn that there are better ways of doing stuff in the 21st century and how you can be a part of creating and investing in a fair and sustainable future for all. There are more solutions than you ever thought possible and more than one better ending to this global story that we all find ourselves in together right now. Tune in to Opportunity. Disrupt Radio. So I'm Tane Hunter. My background is in cancer research, data science, and machine learning. I'm the co-founder of Future Crunch, a think tank that seeks out stories of human progress and ingenuity, which I think we all need to hear a little bit more of about this day and age. Now, I'm really excited because today we're going to dive into killer thinking. No, not that kind. Killer ideas with incredible outcomes for as many parties as possible. The kind of thinking advocated by Tim Duggan, an author, advisor, and optimist who firmly believes in the power of business to do good. Tim Duggan is the author of best-selling business books, Cult Status and Killer Thinking, He's also the co-founder of Junk Media. To quote him himself, he says, We need better ideas right now. Everywhere you look, there are growing problems that require fresh, creative thinking to help us solve the biggest problems. The good news is, is that anyone can learn to master the art of creating to turn good ideas into brilliant ones. But before we get to that, let's talk about another brilliant idea and a brilliant mind, which is bringing Shasta on the show. Hello, Dr. Shasta Henry. How are you today? (laughs) Hello, Tane. It's good to be here as always. All right. For our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure thing. I am an entomologist. I'm an insect enthusiast. Uh, And I'm also an ecologist. So I study how ecosystems function. And we really love working together because we're pretty excited about what's going on in the world and even beyond it. Because right now there are 10 people living in space and astronomers have found an extra low hum rumbling through the universe. The discovery shows that extra-large ripples in space-time are constantly squashing and changing the shape of space itself. So it turns out maybe your yoga instructor was right. So maybe a little bit of ohm for everybody. Um. (laughs) Back here on the planet we call home. Uh, The Cato Institute has released a new index measuring material well-being. So I'm glad to be able to report that in terms of lifespan, adequate nutrition, access to opportunity and information, and in terms of political freedom, the world in its entirety has become more equal since the 1990s. Swiss voters have approved an increase in the minimum tax on businesses from 11% to 15%, bringing it in line with the OECD's targets and suggesting that the dynamics around the global minimum tax have substantially shifted to the point that it is on the precipice of reality 
in most of the world. May we all be on the precipice of reality. <laughs> yes, let's, let's work Morocco on it. Morocco and the World Bank. And they have just finished a nine-year project to bring water to the country's most remote areas, especially on the Atlantic coast in places like the Rif and Pre-Rif regions. So this means that over a million people have gained access to potable water supply. The United States says it will rejoin UNESCO, the UN's cultural and scientific agency. And thankfully, they're going to pay more than $600 million in back dues. This happened after a dispute sparked by the inclusion of Palestine as a member in 2011. Uh, the, I will not say his name, administration... Don't say his name. No, withdrew from UNESCO in 2017. And it's really an important step towards multilateralism. Argentina will no longer require a prescription to obtain emergency contraception, otherwise known as the morning after pill. Broadening reproductive rights in this traditionally conservative South American country means that they are removing an important barrier to access. Back to 1998, where Indonesia initiated a community-based, decentralized approach to protecting its oceans. Over the course of 25 years, through several iterations, 20 million hectares have been protected, leading to a 60% decline in illegal fishing, a 17% increase in coral reef cover, and the return of many long-absent species. In China... Researchers say they've developed perovsite solar cells that not only have greater efficiency, but can also be mass-produced at half the cost of traditional silicon cells. So last year, this team's work was recognized and was one of the top 10 scientific advancements in China by their Ministry of Science and Technology because of this incredible potential. All right, Chesta, would you pay for a $5 lab-grown hamburger? Tane, I eat crickets. I would definitely pay $5 for a lab-grown hamburger. Well, fair enough, because everyone might get the chance if a plan to have cultured meat on Australian shelves might be possible by as soon as next year. The National Food Standard Body is assessing an application from a luxury cultivated meat company while others are watching to see how things will shake out. So we can exciting. So we can report now that cows... Don't. Are. Don't. Utterly. (laughs) Over the moon. No. (laughs) If you can beef them, (laughs) joint them. Moving right along. Moving on. (laughs) But I certainly wish these were the daily headlines and we didn't have to work so hard to find them. Uh, we're going to be talking in our interview all about killer thinking. Like you said, great ideas solve multiple problems all at once. Mm. And we have found multiple news stories to show how many of these incredible, dynamic, empathetic and innovative projects there are out there. So why is my newsfeed only interested in showing me the bad and the ugly? Where's the good? Well, you should look in the mirror. Many times, because you're plenty of good. But what it's based on is the old trope, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Your attention is valuable to the mainstream media, but it's not helping bring about sustainable and positive change. Humanity is really bad at sharing good news, and we're really good at sharing bad news. 
We are hardwired to react to the dramatic and negative, and the media uses it to sell us stuff and gain our attention. So let's help people out, Shasta. Indeed. That's effectively the entire premise of Future Crunch. You guys wanted to motivate people, free up their attention. We want to get people feeling active instead of just reactive. Yeah, inspire intelligent optimism. Factually accurate, of course, because we fundamentally believe that you deserve to feel as good as the evidence supports, which is why our commentary is full of our favorite accounts of remarkable human endeavors. So Shasta, what do you reckon? Should we give some people a bit of good news? I've got some good news in the tank. Let's go. The World Health Organization has certified Belize as malaria-free. This is after a 70-year-long effort to eradicate the disease. It's actually the third country to be awarded malaria-free status in 2023. Only one other country in the Americas has achieved this over the past five years. Similarly, the Gates Foundation has just announced $550 million for the trial of a new tuberculosis vaccine. This will be covering 26,000 people in 50 states from Africa and Southeast Asia. Now, this is a big deal. Tuberculosis is the deadliest infectious disease on the planet. It killed 1.6 million people just last year. And the only vaccine that we have for it is over a century old, so a new vaccine would instantly become one of the most important medicines in the world. Huzzah. Now, we've all become familiar with potent antivirals during the COVID pandemic, but these medicines came to us thanks to the continued fight against AIDS. In places like South Africa, by 2022, new infections had dropped by threefold from its peak in 1999. Deaths linked to HIV cases are also on the decline, less than a fifth of the peak, which was in 2005. Now, a lot of this is thanks to the largest ever investment by the U.S. government to fight a single disease. Since 2003, more than 25 million lives have been saved. 5.5 million infants have been born HIV-free, and more than three-quarters of people living with HIV and AIDS globally are receiving these antiretrovirals. I think that's pretty good news. Indeed. And and absolutely everyone should know that the same treatments are available in Australia and globally. If you get exposed to HIV, you can receive treatment immediately, which may prevent transmission of the virus. Yeah. Or you can reduce your viral load to almost zero for the rest of your life. That's how babies are born virus-free, even if their mothers and fathers are HIV positive. So effectively, you can functionally live with this disease. Science has literally flipped the script on one of humanity's deadliest foes. All right, Chasta, let's hit us with another one. Another goodie. Robots are being employed to unclog city sewers, which up until now has been an incredibly dangerous job done by humans. Due to the increase in human population, in the volume of shit that we put down our toilets, and also a change in the type of things we send into our sewers. Anybody remember the, uh, the, 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 the iceberg made out of wet wipes and fat? 
unearthed in Sydney. I helped well, create it, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> that phenomena is occurring globally. Also because of changing climate patterns and increases in rain, basically we're seeing a, a global increase in sewer blockages and in sewer backups and blowouts. Gen Robotics is an Indian robotics company that have created what they call the Bandicoot. This is a robust and agile machine which can replace human hands down there in the dangerous sewers. Bandicoot seems a little unfair. It to does. Me, to me, it's more like a raccoon. The good old trash panda. <laughs> Bandicoots are not an iconic Australian trash animal, so I think that we should rename it to Bin Chickens. It's not a bandicoot, it's a bin chicken. <laughs> well, aside from the bandicoot's grabby hands, the robots are also fitted with things like toxic gas sensors. So not only are they saving human bodies, but they're also saving human lives. Despite being outlawed in 2013, there are still around 770,000 people who work as sewer cleaners. That's just in India. So Gen Robotics were very mindful of the communities that they were disrupting as well as helping. And along with designing and launching the, the Bandicoot, I mean the, the Bin Chicken, Gen Robotics also ran a safety awareness campaign for sewer cleaners. And then they recruited many people to operate their machines and they even designed the interface to specifically fit that demographic. I like it. All right, Tane, it's it's your turn. Tell me more. I remember the young Dutch kid, Boyan Slat. He oh, created yeah? the yeah, the Ocean Cleanup Project. While it has not removed the Great Pacific Garbage Patch over the last five years, which it forecast, it has removed more than two hundred metric tons from the Pacific Ocean. However, a garbage truck worth of plastic enters the world's oceans every minute. So ocean cleanup are continuing their innovative waste disruption by moving closer to the source of the problem, and that's the rivers. Interceptor is their latest trash-collecting machine, using the power of the river's current to direct garbage onto a solar-powered conveyor belt. One such was installed in 2020 on the Rio Azama in the Dominican Republic, one of the dirtiest rivers in the world, where the interceptor can fill up in just three days during the raining season. So just a thousand rivers are responsible for 80% of riverine plastic pollution globally, with interceptors currently stationed at 10 of the thousand. They've collected more than 10 times the volume of plastic from these rivers as they can and do from the ocean. So let's get down to business. We're here today to focus on those killer ideas that have a positive impact on many people with near infinite winners, the type you hear about and think, damn, I wish I'd thought of that. So here are some specific stories to prime your engines. We heard last week from our interviewees about Asparagopsis. It's a native Australian seaweed which can reduce the methane in cow burps by up to 98%. Damn, I wish I'd thought of that because that's about 10% of Australia's total greenhouse gas emissions. I thought it was farts, not burps. What are you talking about? I think farts, ironically, are much more saleable, but uh, the the major origin of methane from uh, the meat and dairy industry involving cows is from their burps because they're ruminants, they chew their cud, they, they mull their digestive 
breakfast over and over again, and that is what generates the methane. It's their burps, not their yeah. farts. <laughs> They've got a four-chambered stomach as well. So anyway. The CSIRO in Australia calculated that if just 10% of global ruminant producers adopted their seaweed product called Future Feed, that would have the same impact as removing 100 million cars from the world's roads. That sounds like a non-killer idea. Absolutely. Now, Asparagopsis seaweed produces a bioactive compound. It's called bromoform, and it's that which prevents the formation of methane. It inhibits a specific enzyme in the gut. Now, it only takes about 60 grams of seaweed per cow, I'm guessing per feed. And the seaweed even increases primary production, though, so it makes the food better. And it makes the cows better. And this increase in livestock productivity could actually create enough food for an additional 23 million people in the future. That's awesome. It's totally awesome. And of course, all seaweed is absorbing CO2 and releasing oxygen simply to grow. This means that any seaweed product is a sustainable, plentiful, regenerative crop. Finally, Asparagopsis seaweed as a group, they're found in oceans all over the planet. This means that there's no risk to introducing a this means that there's no risk of creating introduced species to other regions and anyone can begin their own harvesting and production of this future feed product. In more methane news, New York City has unveiled the largest composting program in the US being the first time that many New Yorkers have access to curbside composting. So composting reduces weight by uh, waste volume by 50%, the weight of waste volume. So when we allow the water content to evaporate from the food, which otherwise would become contaminating, contaminating wastewater. So the NYC program will be eliminating 1.1 million tons of organic waste from landfill, which also prevents its fermentation into methane gas. So less cow burps out there. Citywide composting of course, of course creates compost, which can be sold to city landscaping and individuals to grow some healthy veggies. Also of particular concern of the mayor was the chance to deal a blow to the city's rat population, which compete with the native urban biodiversity, and that includes humans. <laughs> it does. Humans Humans are entitled to their place in their ecosystem, even in New York City. Now, Tane, do you remember laser fruit labeling? Yes, laser fruit tats, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fruit tattoos, tattoos for, for fruit. It, it basically replaces those fiddly little fruit stickers. I mean, they are necessary. It shows the origin of the products, but those can be replaced by fruit skin tattoos. The label is lasered onto the very, very top layer of cells of uh, the skin of particular fruits and vegetables. But I was surprised to find that quite a lot of them are candidates, things like sweet potatoes and mangoes, corn, garlic, even figs have a robust enough skin. And so there was a groundswell around this technology back in around 2017, and then I don't remember hearing much more about it. This testimony to the fact that good news takes time. Because a Dutch group which adopted the technology back in 2017, they've recently reached an ecological landmark, having now saved 50 million plastic fruit stickers from entering the world. 
Now, so, the technique not only saves on the labels, but of course, there's their backing paper. There's the ink for printing and their shipping. In fact, a laser mark requires only a fraction of the energy of a sticker. And the technology is coming to Australia. Now, I would never have dreamed of needing to know this two weeks ago, but Hort Connections uh, puts me in mind of Hort Couture. Hort Connections is Australia's leading horticultural convention, and it was on last week, where EcoMark technology was launched for the Australian fruit and vegetable market. So hopefully we will see them here soon. Fruit, skin, tattoos, and if not... Now's the opportunity to write to your representative and ask, why not? Now, this is a sad moment, Chasto, because I have to say goodbye to you. Oh, no. Goodbye, everyone. Oh, not forever, just for the rest of the show, because I had to interview Tim Duggan, who we're talking about at the top of the show, because we were together at a business conference, both speaking uh, and in Bali. So we had to do it alone. We wish you were there. That's That's true. I was not in Bali. But that just means that I'm as excited to hear what Tim had to say, along with all of the rest of the listeners. He really does sound like a remarkable and disruptive thinker. I'm excited. Disrupt Radio. Conscious Capital. This is Disrupt Radio, and you're listening to Conscious Capital with me, Tane Hunter. I'm really excited to be here with Tim Duggan, the author of Cult Status, And I could continue on your bio for ages, but I'm just really excited to have a chat with one of the most beautiful minds I've come across in years. So Tim, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, firstly, thank you for that compliment. That feels wonderful. It's a real one. Uh, Thank you very much. Um, So my name is Tim Duggan. I don't know what to call myself anymore. I used to call myself a new media entrepreneur but I kind of hate the word entrepreneur. It makes my skin crawl because I think there's a lot of negative connotations around it. For sure. So I no longer call myself that. Then a few years ago, I started writing books to share some of my knowledge and to frankly meet really interesting people and pick their brains about things and issues I care about. So then I called myself an author for a while. Um, I called myself a new media entrepreneur because I co-founded um, my first website in 2006, which was called Same Same, which is a national gay and lesbian website. And awesome. then over a couple of years, that evolved with the friends that I co-founded it with into a media company called Junkie Media. Um, we were a publisher. We are a publisher for Australian millennials. And we built the company up into about 60 or so full-time staff before we sold it in 2016. And then now advisor is close. I kind of advise a bunch of companies and mentor some people. I do some investing, but investor is once again another strange term to describe yourself as. So I don't know what to call myself. I'm a bit of everything. Well, I would describe you as a citizen of the world. You're currently in Mallorca, right? Is I am, right? yes. I live, yeah. in, live in Mallorca with my husband, which is a wonderful part of the world to be able to call home. Yeah. Well, what do you like about it? What don't I like about it? <laughs> All right. I've lived in Australia for my whole life I kind of was married to my company that we co-founded when I was 23 and the responsibility then of having staff and having cash flow and having to make sure that we brought in revenue to um, sustain everyone's lives was so big that I actually couldn't leave Australia for many many years so when I was 40 which was two years ago I left the country for the first time to live overseas obviously traveled a lot and 
Mallorca is beautiful. It is Spanish speaking. I'm, I'm trying to learn Spanish at the moment. Go to classes five days a week over in Mallorca. Que pasa? Oh, muy bien. Oh. Sí. Tu hablas español? Oh, un poquito. Ah. Uh, I grew up in New Mexico, so I know all the swear words. Okay. And apologies for any Spanish speakers for my accent, because as I said, I am learning. Yeah. Aprendo español. If you're listening to the pitter-patter of rain in the background, Tim and I are in Bali. In the room where we are, quite ASMR. It's yes. like very calming having rain outside, so hopefully the listeners can hear that. I want to go back to the fact that you felt held back by your blossoming in business in your early 20s, right? And so I like to ask people the, this question. It's a three-pronged question. Do you want it in nautical themes, uh, questionnaire form, or would you like it in flight form? Because you're a jet setter. I would love it in nautical theme because I feel that that speaks to your history and experience on the high seas. I, I do like a bit of sailing. So let's talk about your anchors first. What held you back? Because it sound, sounds like you were tethered back then. The first one was that I felt in a way when I was in Australia, like I was inside a beautiful gilded cage of my own making. Yeah. Um, I had built it in terms of accidentally. So young and dumb and naive in my 20s. Oh, to be young again. <laughs> yes. I can't be young again, but I can be naive. As in, I feel like there's parts of blinkers that you can put on intentionally and go into things naively. And I mean that in a really positive way. I think naivety is the most wonderful attribute. Yeah. So I was young and dumb and naive in the 20s when I just didn't know what I didn't know. And starting a business in your 20s is easy. And I, and I mean that. I think starting a business is one of the easiest things to do. Running a business is hard. Exiting a business is really hard. But starting something is quite easy. Yeah. You tell a couple of mates about it. You test things out. I know that's a very privileged thing of me to say that it's starting and that it's easy. But it, but it is. I think that anyone can start a business. Anyone should start a business if they have an idea. No matter what age, and I'm not just trying to be ageist here, but it is easier the younger you are. So what did you find, on reflection, what was your anchors? What was holding you back? Yeah, I think... I think a growing sense of responsibility was something that was kind of holding me, connecting me to Australia. I couldn't shirk off my responsibility, which was providing income for lots of people around me. Yeah. I also think the the comfortability that I'd built, I was really comfortable. I had my friends and family around me. I obviously spoke the language. I knew how things worked. I knew levers to pull in order to get things I wanted. And I was really, really comfortable. And I loved that. But that, to me, also was an anchor. I think that was holding me back. I just was so comfortable that I didn't want to break free of that. And that was something that took me two decades, about 15 years, to kind of break free from that comfort and say, no, 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 I, I want to be uncomfortable. I want to go into a store where I don't know how to speak the language. Yeah. I want to spend months dealing with a visa system that is frustrates me at every turn I, I, I kind of didn't know that I wanted to be uncomfortable and now that I'm living overseas 
I am distinctly uncomfortable many times a day and I love that it makes me feel alive yeah I find like being in in an uncomfortable place like ignites different parts of yourself right so from your experiences what's really giving you the wind in your sails yeah I think the values that I inherited from my parents are one uh, my dad passed away about 18 months ago and when a parent passes away you have this amazing time for reflection amazing time to just think about what it is that one generation has passed on to another and these values of optimism and positivity and of um, always seeing opportunity and fairness and equality and values like that I now recognize in myself I inherited term or I modeled on my father in particular and that to me has just given huge wind in my sails that I'm very aware of now probably more so than any other time in my life yeah and how did you deal with his death and I, I talk about this from a personal perspective I haven't lost my father yet and that's one of my biggest fears right but I grew up in New Mexico and in Mexican culture and Dia de los Muertos Day of, Day of the Dead, celebrating life rather than mourning it. And mourning is an important process, right? You've got to mourn it. But I think, how, can, how are you taking your father forward? Yeah, so my dad died of an incurable cancer called multiple myeloma. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. Liquid cancer. Yeah, yeah, it's a really tough one. But once again, using the... Um, principles of optimism and positivity that my dad passed down it meant that he had a diagnosis and was given about a six-year um, window of, in which to he was going to pass away and he passed away almost in the month the doctor predicted six years earlier so we therefore had six years which in some ways of looking at it is a long period of time otherwise a short period of time yeah. but we had six years to mourn whilst he was still alive to talk about it to understand it to slowly wind down to try to come to terms with it and i don't think that it didn't make that final end point any easier but it did allow us to have six years of gradual mourning yeah um i still don't know what's better someone being hit by a car or someone having six years um to go however in my experience it was quite a beautiful time because you could say everything that you wanted to say yeah. and vice versa, hear everything you wanted to hear. So when he passed away, I remember he was in the hospital and he turned to a priest at the time and it was just him and the priest in a room. And he said to the priest, there is nothing I haven't done in my life. I have not one regret. I've said everything I wanted to say. My family know how I feel about them. My friends know how I feel. I'm ready to go. And the priest came out and told us, the family, and the priest was in tears. He said, I've never met someone who's so content with how they were. And I think that's got to do with the six years of coming to terms with that. He'd also had six years in his mind of coming to terms with that. Um, So I take a lot of lessons from that. Um, I learned a lot of entrepreneurial lessons from my father. He started a business in his 20s as well that um, went on to become very successful. So there's a lot of business things, and I just think... You know, if I need to distill down where the wind in my sails comes from, it's from my father. And how about your mum? Yeah, she, she's also the most incredible woman um, who has had to 
survive and get through losing her partner of 50 years. Yeah. Um, and the lessons from her are the just get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> she, she is extremely sad and she has been through a lot, but she just puts her shoes on in the morning and just gets back on the bus every day. Yeah. Um, metaphorically. And that is an amazing lesson as well in not wallowing and in just doing and being active and trying to just keep going because you've got no other option. And, you know, you know an optimist is a choice that you make every day, every action. You yeah. make a choice. Am I going to... Am I going to blame this feeling on something external or am I going to use it as a motivator for something internal? Yeah. And I choose optimism most days, not blind optimism. I'm very aware of... No, naive optimism is a trap. Yes, yes. But um, I choose optimism most days. And then the other thing that I have learned from my mother in particular is I also choose that emotions follow actions. Yeah. So if you don't... I love that. Yeah, and if you don't feel like doing it sometimes, and the two that I think of in my own life are going for a swim. You never regret a swim. Even if you're... My husband and I always say that to each other. We're like, sometimes 50-50, it might be raining outside. It could be cold. Should we go for a swim? Sure. And we never say no, and you never regret a swim. Even a terrible swim, even if it's cold, even if it's rainy, you feel amazing. And the other one's going to the gym and kind of exercising, moving your body. Yeah. And I'm get up at 5.30 and go um, to the gym in the morning. I don't feel like doing that on many days, but just do. And then afterwards, you feel so amazing and you never regret going to the gym. All right, so let's let's move this to your entrepreneurial spirit. Um, how has it driven you? So first of all, I want to point out that I don't mind the word entrepreneurial. I think that makes sense. My main issue with the word is I think it is too broad. And it puts everyone in the same bucket, whether you are a tech bro or whether you are, a, you know, working NFTs or anything like that versus someone else who is a creative entrepreneur. And it puts everyone in the same bucket. And I feel like it's too broad a bucket to put everyone in the same title. Yeah. That's my issue with the word. Yeah, because it's a spectrum, right? It is a spectrum. Yes. Yeah, it's like calling a plant a plant. Yeah, totally agree. So I started writing books a couple of years before I left my full-time job at Chunky Media. I was coming towards the end of spending 15 years building a business and I loved it, but the business had morphed and evolved a lot during that time. We'd sold it to an ASX listed company and all of a sudden the three biggest things that I spent my time focusing on, which was not the reasons why I got into business, I could hand off to somebody else. And those three things were cash flow, legals, and HR. Yeah. No one starts a business to deal with cash flow, legal, and HR. Yeah. Unless you're a cash flow, legal, HR business, and that's your what we're trying to do. And yet, 15 years into it, I found myself sitting with the CFO doing daily cash flow forecasts, sitting with head of HR, dealing with people issues sitting with lawyers talking about whatever legal case we had going on or someone were fighting or contracts or whatever it was. I wasn't trained in any of those things. Yeah. That's not where my expertise is. I hadn't made all the mistakes that could be made in any of those fields. 
How did you choose the right people? Because I've had the same issue in my entrepreneurial uh, efforts. Like HR, the human side of things is really important. Financial sides are really important. You have to keep your finger on the pulse, but actually you have to be removed from it to do the creative and deep work to like propel yourself forward. What are some, what are some of the lessons that you've learned to choose the right person and keep your finger on the pulse, but not being controlled by the pulse? Yeah, I've hired hundreds of people over the years and sat in on, I tried to count it up at one stage, it was probably a thousand plus interviews. Um, and the one thing that I learnt by the end of doing that was attitude beats aptitude every single time. So we would hire for attitude. Yeah. We would hire, is this the right person? There was this thing called a plane test, which is, would you sit next to this person on a plane for 24 hours? Yeah. And I loved that because I would sit in interviews and I would generally do the second or third interview. So, I'd, you know, the director manager would do a short list and then they'd say, Tim, can you come in and do it? And I was the vibe check. Yeah. I was the person kind of going to figure out is this person going to gel with our environment? Are they not? Are they a big company person? Are they a small company person? Um, and that to me was more important. I wouldn't ask them that in order to get into that second stage or get to chatting with myself, they would need to have proven that they can, if it was an accounting role, they can count. <laughs> if it was a writing role, they can write. Yes. But I almost didn't care about their aptitude. Um, yeah. All I cared about was attitude. Are you the right person? Is there any bit of you that has any toxicity there that is going to catch on and be really hard to put out, which is experiences that I've had in many um, over many years? Second you on that. Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's really hard to get rid of a culture sometimes when it, it kind of metastasizes. What's the term M for it? Metastasizes. Metastasizes. Yeah, yeah. A single bad seed can cause a lot of damage. A hundred percent. And I think every business owner has seen elements of that. If the longer you're in business, the more you see that. Yeah. So my job would be to ensure that someone coming in had the right attitude and then anything can be taught. You can get taught how to do something. You can get taught, yeah. but you, so if, if you have the wrong attitude, um, there's this concept that um, I think it's Amazon uses of brilliant jerks. Have you heard of a brilliant jerk? Uh, I've had a few brilliant yeah, jerks. Yeah, yeah. And we have as well. Over, over the years, we, we'd, we'd hired people who were very good at their job. So there might be a sales job. Yeah. And they were amazing and they brought in lots of money, but they were a jerk in how they yeah. did it. Um, and you have to, as a business owner, figure out, do I want the outcome, which is good, and then the culture, which is terrible. Uh, and it took me years and years to figure out that you can train anyone to increase their output but you can't train a jerk to not be a jerk. Conscious capital, net profit to net zero. I want to get on to your new book because your past books are awesome. Cold Status, you actually created a cold status by writing cold status, <laughs> which is great. But let's talk about your new ideas. What's on the cutting edge? What's on the fringe of your mind, Tim? And it's very on the fringe. It's actually on the forefront of my mind at the moment. It's no longer on the fringe. Um, I am currently into my second draft of rewriting my third book. 
Oh, nice. Yeah, which is which is due in a couple of weeks and will come out in 2024 sometime. And so my first book, Cult Status, is all about communities and entrepreneurship and how to build a really strong community around a business or project. So community for first book. My second book was Killer Thinking, and that was all about creativity in the workplace. Once again, a giant topic that I tried to distill down and turn into a process. And this third book is the big topic I'm exploring at the moment is the future of work. Huge topic. Involves everyone on the planet. Yes. Um, where we've got to work ourselves out of the situation we've created. We do. We do. And, and the premise I'm starting the book off with is that the way we are working is broken. Yeah. So we're generally overworked. We're yes. working very long hours. We're generally unengaged. We are, um, most people don't find meaning at work. Um, about 80 or 85% of people say that they are unengaged in some way in their workplace. And the third one is that we're relatively apprehensive about what's around the corner. Is AI going to take my job? Um, is my profession going to continue to exist in the future? Will my kids have jobs? Are there yeah. too many people on the planet? All of these kind of big questions. And so the way that we're currently working is broken. And we had a glimpse during COVID of alternative ways of working. Yeah, it kind of busted everything wide open. Right? Everything. All these myths that we were told about you have to be in an office five days a week. You have to, you can't work from home. Um, you can't, you know, work has to be the most important thing in your life. All these myths were just busted completely open when yeah. employers had no choice but to give in to something that was bigger than them, which yeah. was science. And, They're employees. Yeah, and, and, and science and, 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 and science. a disease that was spreading around. Science is true whether you believe it in it or not. Yes, that's my, I like that. Um, and so we had this power shift happen between yeah. from employers to employees. And that, to me, is fascinating. Absolutely. It was, it was, it's too big a topic to not understand. And so I've been waiting, you know, writing this a lot during COVID, um, speaking to really smart people around the world from researchers at Yale and Harvard and uh, a lot of researchers who, who are smarter than me who have done the work in particularly meaning at work and where yeah. that comes from. Um, and then speaking to a lot of workers as well. So dozens of workers from bakery owners in Glasgow to miners in Perth to dog walkers in Sydney through to um, creative consultants, writers, just dozens of people all around the world people who have reconsidered the role that work plays in their life, particularly COVID and now in a post-COVID world. Yeah. And that's a really fascinating place to, to, to wallow and think through. Yeah, I mean, the combination of exponential technology growth and in the wake of a global pandemic that has rearranged societal norms and people are far more amenable to change because we had to change really quickly. What's getting you excited about the future of work right now? Yeah, I think the most important thing is a reframing of how we think about the future of work. Yeah, attitude again, yeah. Attitude. It's, uh, I think it's really funny looking at a through line through my books, and they're all around different topics, but they all essentially come down to rethinking the way you look at something. And, mm -hmm. and the future of work, I think when I've told people over the last few years I'm writing about the future of work, everyone says to me, how many days should I be in the office? Will we still be able to work from home in the future? Everyone has these really specific questions, yeah. which to me says the future of work is 
it's here. It's no longer the future. It's, it's here. Wait, the future is now. The future Wait, is now. No, the future is now. <laughs> Wait, no, it's now. <laughs> it was then. Oh, it's yeah. Now, now. But that, now it's now. Um, it's extremely personal because yeah. what I want from my life and the values that I have are very different to the values that you have. Yes. Um, and it's extremely messy. I think that's kind of something to kind of point out is that there's no single answer. But the, the reframe that I think needs to happen is to think of all of these topics, so hybrid work and remote working and um, taking sabbaticals and four-day work weeks, instead of thinking of them as the answer, reframing them as tools that we have in our arsenal now to realign our, our life with our values. Yeah. So as soon as you kind of take the pressure off a four-day work week having to either work for me or not, and realize it is a tool that might work for you for the next six months because you're in a position where your kids are um, at school and you have a Friday to do what you want, yes. but it might not work for you in six months' time when you become a carer to your mum who becomes sick. And I think if you think of each of these things, and what I'm trying to do in this book is explore four-day work weeks and explore remote working and explore hybrid working, but as tools to be used at different times of our life, as long as they line up with what our priorities are, what meaning we want to get out of work and outside work, and what our core values are. Yeah. And I think if you can define what they are, then all of a sudden these tools are so much more useful than being um, something that has to solve everything to for everyone. Wow. I love Tim, and I hope you enjoyed his ideas about the world and how to navigate it. Uh, he's one of the most beautiful minds that I've come across in many years. So we used over 42 references for this episode. And if you want to keep up and stay in touch with what's going on, you can sign up to the Future Crunch weekly newsletter. It's full of cutting edge science and technology stuff, plenty of stories around progress, especially about sustainability, conservation, clean energy, and the best business leadership that we can find on the web. And it's also just a great breath of fresh air. Now, I love to leave people with a quote. So this one is by Paul Hawken. And he says, when asked if I'm a pessimist or an optimist about the future, my answer is always the same. If you look at the science about what is happening on Earth and you aren't pessimistic, then you're definitely not understanding the data. But if you meet the people who are working to restore this Earth and the lives of the poor and you're not optimistic, you haven't got a pulse. What he sees everywhere are ordinary people willing to confront despair, power, and incalculable odds in order to restore some semblance of grace, justice, and beauty in the world. Well, we'll leave you with that. And stay safe out there. Be classy, planet Earth, and don't do anything we wouldn't do. Hi, I'm Nick Brax, host of Soul Trader on Disrupt Radio. I've been interviewing people who have achieved huge things in life and uncovering how they keep it together and how they survive the struggle to success. You can listen to all of my podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or whichever podcast you prefer. Just search Nick Brax, Soul Trader. When you finish binging all of my shows, be sure to check out the rest of the Disrupt Podcast Library, The Business Lounge, The Next Shift, Global Disruptors, The Advisory Board, and Conscious Capital. Maybe you own a business or an entrepreneur or just simply want to improve yourself. Disrupt podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
tune in to Opportunity. Disrupt Radio.